Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Brendan O'Shea here, welcoming you to this edition of the podcast, Tall Poppies, where we meet the conductor and author, Paul Kilday. I have always tried to work out a way of coming up with a single image or analogy or a metaphor that makes it really clear to a non-specialist the phenomenon of hearing that piece of music in that moment and that a specialist can't criticise me over. Um, mm. So that seems to me the, 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 the double-edged sword has to be that you can make it so clear to a non-specialist but that a specialist isn't allowed to laugh at you. <laughs> has to say, oh, I get what you're saying. Initially from Canberra, Paul Kilday studied piano and musicology at the University of Melbourne before completing his doctorate at Oxford. Since his conducting debut with Opera Australia in 1997, Paul's conducted many of today's great artists in opera houses and concert halls throughout Europe and Australia. Among these, London's Nash Ensemble, the Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, the West Australian Symphony Orchestra, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and Hamburg's Philharmonic Orchestra, to name but a few. Already in his student days, Paul was fascinated by the music of Benjamin Britten, so much so that that composer became the subject of his Oxford doctoral thesis. In 1999, Paul was appointed head of music at the Aura Festival, an event established by Benjamin Britten and his partner Peter Pears in the composer's hometown in Suffolk. In 2003, Paul Kilday became the artistic director of one of London's most prestigious concert venues, the Wigmer Hall. In this position, he commissioned numerous works from new composers and was instrumental in launching the careers of many young musicians. Back in Australia, Paul Kilday has held an artistic position in Perth and was artistic director of the Four Winds Festival, an event on the south coast of the Australian state of New South Wales. But further to all this, Paul Kilday has written and broadcast extensively on music and culture in the 20th century. His first three books feature the music and work of the composer Benjamin Britten. The third, a biography called Benjamin Britten, A Life in the 20th Century, was published in 2013, the composer's centenary year, and hailed by the Financial Times as unquestionably the music book of the year. Well, Paul Kilday's fourth book has just been published. It's titled Chopin's Piano, A Journey Through Romanticism. It tells the captivating story of Frédéric Chopin and the fate of his Mallorcan pianino. The Italian term pianino simply means small piano and refers to a 19th century upright piano of limited range. And in this case, the piano the composer Chopin used while writing a number of his renowned 24 preludes when he lived for a period of time on the Spanish island of Mallorca. 
The book traces musical romanticism from the early 19th to the mid-20th century. Among its protagonists are, of course, the composer Chopin and the French novelist Georges Sand. While the unexpected hero of this book is the great keyboard player Wanda Landowska, who discovered Chopin's Pianino in 1911 and rescued it in 1913 when she added it to her historical collection of keyboards in Paris. Landowska was Jewish and fled the Nazi occupation of Paris to live in the United States in 1941 and became one of the most influential artistic figures of the 20th century. But at the heart of this book's 24 chapters are Chopin's 24 preludes. It traces the instruments on which they were played, the pianists who interpreted them, and the traditions they came to represent. Indeed, it all begins and ends with that Mallorcan pianino, an instrument that became a much coveted cultural artefact during the Second World War, as the Nazis saw it as a symbol of the man and music they were determined to appropriate as their own. He worked with lathes and wooden mallets, adzes and gouges, fine-tooth saws, mandrels, casting moulds and kiln, pliers, pots of lacquer and glue. He cut spruce and local softwood, hardwood blocks and planks, sheets of ivory and mahogany veneer. He heated pig iron that, when molten, he poured into moulds, which he then slaked in cold water. He wrapped copper windings around iron strings and threaded them onto a reinforced frame. He created a complex sequence of hinges, levers, long metal rods, rest pins and wooden hammers, which he covered in spun wool, felt or deerskin. He lathed and planed hardwood into two delicate ornamental legs, which bulbed in five or six places, like exquisite gnarly roots. Above ivory wafered keys he fixed an intricately carved lacework panel, a strip of a dozen or so square tiles. Onto the mahogany casing over this moorish frieze, he attached copper candle paws. Paul Kilday reading there from his latest book. Well, I caught up with the author at the Brighton Festival, where in a reading recital with one of today's great Chopin interpreters, Cédric Tebeguian, Paul Kilday presented his latest book.
Paul Kilday, thank you very much for finding some time to come on this podcast. What a pleasure. <laughs> all those years back, young lad from Canberra, makes it all the way over to Oxford. How was it for you at the beginning there? And how well prepared did you feel for your career that was to follow? I don't think very well prepared. I, re- I remember my mother saying to me that, you know, going to Oxford, look, if you keep your mouth shut, you might just get away with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and I think that's how we, we were kind of raised. And it was good for me because I went there and worked out that I didn't have to keep my mouth shut, that actually I had things to say and, and a brain that could be put to some use. So I, I didn't expect to stay over here, I've got to admit. I expect to study, do a doctorate and then and return to Australia, but um, it, it didn't kind of work out that way. And it's taken a long time to, uh, to get home. Yeah, but I'm sure we'll touch on that. You've had some pretty important teachers over the years that have remained with you and this all started, of course, back in, in Canberra and, and in Melbourne, right? Yeah, completely. Um, look, if you're a late developer, as I was, if you if you come to an instrument late, uh, two things happen. You're not 14 and spending four hours a day practising, leaving no time for books or no time for anything else. You're actually sort of playing catch-up. And if you're playing catch-up, you're incredibly dependent on your teachers. And, uh, and I was very lucky with a, a piano teacher first, uh, and then uh, Keith Radford, and then Malcolm Gillies at Melbourne University, and then at Oxford, um, Cyril Ehrlich, um, uh, under whom I did my doctorate. And uh, he was a social and economic historian, but with this huge love of instruments and pianos in particular, and he played really well and uh, self-taught. Yeah, so I've, I've been very lucky, and of course th- that's shaped the way I think about music and the way I approach it, but also the way I approach mentoring myself, how I try and you know, repay that debt, if you like, to, to younger people. Yeah, so I, I was lucky. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot going on in Canberra when, when I was growing up um, musically. You know, perhaps I would have had a different outcome had there been more going on. I, I might have encountered music earlier and, um, and worked out that that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, having said that, you know, I, I, I had, you know, really wonderful tuition and mentors um, throughout my adult life. When do you know you're an Australian? I don't know. Like, I did an interview yesterday and... Um, and and uh, the journalist, lovely journalist, just said, um, "Oh yeah, your your accent's very strong." And I went, "From which country?" And he went, "Australian." Australian. And I said, "Whereas you know, I, I went to uh, enrolled with a new doctor in um, Melbourne, and uh, uh, just a few weeks ago." And and he just said, uh, "What is it with that accent?" <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere along the line, it's halfway halfway between one, halfway between the other. I don't know. I I don't know how to answer that actually. I feel more comfortable in Australia than I do anywhere else. I get Australian uh, humour, the way we think, the way we operate. I feel very Australian over here um, in England because any time I've been involved in in slightly um, unfortunate episodes, that thing about being Australian comes up and you just sort of think, wow, that's a way of you lazily categorising me with a shorthand that unfortunately people recognise. People would just go, well, of course an Australian would, would say that or do that or, or, or yeah. Um, so I, I feel comfortably Australian in Australia and I feel outsider over here. So I suppose that answers the, the, the question, yeah. I'd like to go back to the very beginning of this book and your discussion with your friends, the Krauses, I think their names are, yeah. and this fascination that... That conversation obviously stimulated at the time to actually get you to sit down and think about all this. How did this all come together with Chopin as well? Well, 
the Krausers are two lovely friends of mine to whom the, this new book uh, is dedicated. We had a lunch five years ago, and uh, we were just chatting about uh, this and that. And uh, Ruth, who's a really beautiful pianist and was as a child prodigy and was living in Vienna in 1951, and she'd known the, um, the Barenboim's, well, her parents had known Danny Barenboim's parents um, from a posting in Buenos Aires. And when it came to being in Vienna, Daniel Barenboim's mother said to uh, my friend's mother, look, you need to get her a serious instrument, a decent instrument, because she's a very serious player. And she was telling me this story, which I didn't know. And, and she said, oh, and we found this beautiful um, 1913 Bersendorfer with, you know, uh, grand, it was just gorgeous. And then she said, you know, and of course, those instruments in Vienna in 1951 were ten a penny. You could pick them up for, for nothing. And, you know, that penny then dropped with me. And I just went, wow, I've never actually thought about this. You know, we know everything about looted art, but we, we know nothing at all about looted instruments. And um, so my idea at that stage was to, to write a book about um, the Nazi looting of, of music collections and, um, and very valuable instruments. And, you know, and there are a lot of isolated and also connected cases um, to that end. But in the course of researching it, I found out about the looting of Wanda Landowska's collection. And then just it, her collection was, of instruments was actually quite large. And, um, but one jumped out at me, which was this piano that um, Chopin had with him in Mallorca. Um, in the, the winter of 1838, 1839. And I just thought, oh, I'd be really interested to trace that piano and in tracing it also tell a story about the music that Chopin wrote on it, which was uh, to finish off the Preludes, Opus 28, and also then to, to talk about how pianism, how piano playing, how pianos, um, how our concept of romanticism changed in the course of 100 years tracing you know the path from Chopin and this piano in Mallorca to uh, van der Landowska um, finding the piano 70 years later to the looting of it um, by the Nazis in 1941 so it, it seemed to me just this uh, this uh, a lovely kind of narrative framework to tell a complex story and that's what I've attempted to do. One of the things that comes very early in the book is the fact that Chopin was an improviser. And there's that wonderful phrase where I think it's George Sun says that he actually plucked his music out of the air and then spent copious 
amounts of time trying to then write it down and get it. This, this is something I didn't know before, but it makes a lot of sense when you listen to the music of Chopin, that, that he was an improviser. Because there's so many of these little things sound like, oh, yeah, OK, let's go for a twist here. Yeah, that's completely true. And there are two things on that. A lot of contemporaries of Chopin, whether they be reviewers, critics or, or friends of his, would say that when he played, he gave the impression of um, just uh, almost of improvising. Um, and these were pieces that, you know, were published, but the way he actually performed them still had that quality of improvisation uh, to them. And I want to draw a distinction between that and when he was actually just improvising, you know, for fun or for, um, you know, for the, the beginnings of his work. And that's the first thing, that he actually, he looked as though he was improvising uh, when he performed published works, his own published works. And the second thing is how far we've moved from that in terms of modern performances of Chopin. Now, on one level, that's kind of to be expected because we now you know, know the music so well, it's been recorded so many times, it's part of a mythology rather than an emerging work. But I think it's beholden on pianists today to try and give that impression. And, and we can never play these pieces as if no one's ever heard them before. But to look for that spirit of improvisation would seem to me a, a good thing. And the pianist with whom I was working last night, Cedric Tibagian, um, he said it was really interesting thinking about improvisation. And he said, oh, God, it made him change the way he was playing some of the preludes uh, because he just sort of thought, wow, what would this sound like if instead of it being a piece and we know where it's going and we know, you know, the high points, what if you gave the impression in playing that you don't actually really know where it's going? And how do you transmit that to audiences to make them both unsettled and then kind of uh, hearing this piece anew? So it's a fraught area, but... Uh, knowing that Chopin gave that impression of improvisation and that he looked for that in his own performances and in performances of others and, of course, criticised late in his life at the end of the 1840s, you know, in England, wrote to a friend and just said, look, no one plays to my uh, satisfaction these days. Uh, so already by the end of his life, there was a kind of the Chopin, the published performer and composer, was taking over Chopin, the, the, the improviser and composer. aspects of these particular pieces, the preludes, that we can perhaps sense best of all the type of instrument that Chopin had when he was writing them? Right. Uh, well, he only, we, we think he, he composed nine or ten of the preludes in total uh, on Mallorca and that the rest had been written beforehand in Paris. So the best way of thinking about it, and, and also we're not, you know, we're not completely sure which ones he wrote either, and, and that's a real problem. But I like to think of, like, numbers... Which ones he wrote where, you mean, yeah? Yeah, um, and the best list is by uh, the Chopin scholar Jean-Jacques Eigeldinger, and so he comes up with a really good category of how many um, and which ones he thinks. Like, I've taken that list because, you know, he's been living with Chopin for, for 60 years and um, is, a, is a really fantastic and, and generous and eminent uh, thinker and scholar. And so then you look at things, like, for instance, uh, number, number four... 
um, which he says, you know, we're fairly sure was composed in Mallorca um, in E minor. In some sense, it's quite a primitive prelude. Uh, it's, it's just these uh, drooping chords that kind of drop down the piano and, you know, note by note, which changes the harmonic DNA, if you like, of the piece, and above which is this very, very simple tune. And so you just go, well, uh, would he have done something more um, elaborate had he written the E minor prelude um, on a beautiful instrument in Paris? We don't know. Another example is number seven, the, the, the little A major waltz, you know, which is so kind of deceptively simple and, and almost childlike. And, and so you ask the same thing again. We think Eigeldinger has different views on this. I've read him say, yes, um, number 15, uh, the so-called raindrop, um, if it is the so-called raindrop, because some people now think that number four is the raindrop, um, but that that was written, uh, some, some of it written in Paris, uh, some of it written, obviously, in Mallorca. And if you look at the central section of that, which modulates, in an unequal-tempered piano, uh, tuned to whichever system of tuning they had then, like whether it be mean tuning or, or whatever, that would have sounded pretty unstable um, in this new key, uh, just because when, when pianos weren't tuned to equal temperament, um, certain keys sounded you know, much rougher than others. And so the so-called storm section in the middle of the raindrop would have sounded more unstable. So we can only speculate. It would be much easier uh, you know, if the Bowser piano uh, that he had in Mallorca was still with us. But we only have you know, very few accounts of what it actually sounded like, and they're not very complimentary. Thank you. 
One of the major things that's changed a great deal and is the instrument itself and performances of Chopin today on these modern instruments. And what are the sorts of things that you think perhaps aren't the best? It's really interesting. I was playing yesterday on 1840s, I think probably about 1846, probably 1847, Playel piano. And Chopin had it with him. He acquired it in February of 1848. And then it followed him when he came to do his tour of the UK in, um, in 1848. So really, you know, what, and what a privilege to play an instrument, you know, that old, um, in really beautiful condition down in Hatchlands, the uh, collection of um, historical um, keyboards associated with composers. And it's really clear that you're constrained and liberated in different ways by this instrument. It, it has, for instance, before we had uh, equal temperament um, at the end of the 19th century in keyboard instruments, the different ranges of a piano had a very different quality to them. And composers knew that and wrote to it. Um, Schumann, for instance, wrote um, lots of works which dealt with the sort of the area around Middle Sea, which had a, had a really kind of peculiar quality to it. So we've lost that. Equal temperament's taken that away from us. There's a, an amazing kind of sense of harmonics um, in some of these instruments because of the way that the, the hammers work and the, and the, the dampers uh, operate. And so that's very different from all the sprung-based keyboards uh, of the second half of the 19th century. So, you know, they're, they're beautiful instruments. They're, they're so distinct. I mean, you can recognise that they're related, but they're so distinct in their sound. And we know that Chopin was actually quite conservative in his, his taste in pianos and so wasn't interested in the Erard instruments and those, those instruments that were looking more to the future. And he, and he liked, so he was conservative. But having said all that, um, you know, I'm the greatest fan of the revolution that, that took place from the, the 1860s onwards, um, inspired by Steinway and inspired by really, really smart technicians and inventors coming up with ways of making these pianos um, to the best of their possible ability. And of course, what came in the wake of Steinway was a different way of thinking about how to perform music, how to tour it, how to be a concert artist. Basically, you moved out of um, uh, Chopin's salon um, into the big concert halls that started appearing in the 1870s um, throughout Europe. So it was a different way of thinking about how to perform music. So you can't reinvent the wheel. I mean, you know, Daniel Barenboim did in some senses do this when he worked with the piano manufacturer Maine and invented a, a straight-strung grand piano um, as opposed to an overstrung piano um, made with, you know, Steinway parts and all the rest of it because he wanted to revisit that idea of the different sound qualities in different registers. So we're, we're living in a really strange time in that uh, we have parallel ways of thinking about music and the two lane ways, if you like, are the, the Steinway D model of, of touring and thinking about music um, versus the historically informed performance avenue of thinking about music. And I would have thought by now there would have been far more overlap. And, and there are, of course, brilliant people who, who overlap, Philippe Herweger and, and people like that. But they're still pretty distinct, and, and that surprises me.
tough of a person was he? We, we get a bit of an idea about the relationship that he had with Georges Sand and that he kept contact with her daughter and various other very, very human qualities in there, that he was a meticulous teacher in many ways, that he often wrote out a lot of these ornaments so that his students really were able to play them as close as possible to what he wanted. So and we see him not terribly well for a lot of his life. Yeah, look, he, he, he wasn't in, in great physical health for all of his adult life. The thing that I got out of researching him was that he's, he's not this tragic character. I know that Arthur Rubinstein really disliked the way that uh, Courtauld uh, viewed Chopin because he, he said he, like, he viewed him as this sickly figure and Rubinstein thought that he was actually, you know, was far more, had far more strength and far more virility, if you like, than um, Courtauld allowed him. And I think that's a fair assessment. I think the idea of this sickly, pale, uh, quite small, thin man um, has governed our reading of him, um, certainly in the 20th century. What I got out of him is he's, he's incredibly funny, he's really smart, um, his letters are very caring and very humorous, he's witty, yeah, very compassionate. Yeah, so I think he's been overtaken by the romantic iconography and, and I actually think he's this, uh, you know, this genius, amazing, funny you know, boy who never quite grows up but you know, has had to. And uh, yeah, that's what I take from him, producing these astonishing works without precedence and doing it uh, you know, right up till the very end. He also was torn, wasn't he, between Poland and France? Yes, it's a hard game to play um, what characteristic belongs to what part of him. And, uh, I, but I completely agree with you that people have tried to do it and tried to claim him. And, um, and not, simply, yeah, not simply because he was domiciled in, in, in France uh, for the majority of his life. It's kind of to understand it, it's the, the fraught issue of Polish nationhood in the, um, the 19th and then again in the 20th century when the, when the story picks up again is why I think the concept of nationhood with Chopin became, was there from the very beginning. Who owned him? Um, so there's that, and that's to do with uh, just birth, parentage. Uh, you know, he had a, you know, a half-French uh, father. Uh, you know, so there's all that there. But then you also have that in parallel with the idea that there were different styles of national styles of playing Chopin and what different countries looked for. And by the end of the 19th century, you know, there were probably four different ways of thinking about this. There was the, the Polish way, there's the French way, the English way, which was just all about the, um, the frippery. And then there was, the, uh, there was kind of the Russian way. And, uh, and they each had different claims on Chopin and each thought that they had you know, a right to you know, own him and play him in a certain way. And that became really interesting in the 20th century when, for instance, the Nazis somehow put to one side uh, Chopin's Polish nationality and uh, wanted to have him as a symbol of high art, which the Nazis obviously believed that they, you know, they were custodians of. And that was, you know, in part why they really wanted to find this Chopin piano and, and have it as an icon of, um, of this great culture that, yes, as I say, they were custodians of. So there were always different national claimants on Chopin. You know, it will flare up every now and then. Van der Landowska just sort of said, you know, at one point... Um, uh, when someone in a, a French newspaper said, well, you know, he wrote most of his music here, you know, we consider him French. And she just said, well, you know, um, we Poles, are, you know, have been divided and ruled and subjugated so many times. Uh, we're not feeling so generous about lending him out just now. So, uh, yeah. So he did become a symbol of nationhood, but it just depends, you know, which nation. 
Indeed. And you've, of course, mentioned the other person who's one of the major stars of this book, Wanda Landowska, of course, harpsichordist and this phenomenal music figure of the last century. In so many ways, this is where it starts to get remarkably interesting in another way, doesn't it? Because she really goes to such trouble to get this piano and her collection of pianos and all the work that she's doing around the place. We get to know so much about her. And Tell us about your discoveries. How much of her did you know about beforehand? Because I think many of us know her as a harpsichordist, but I, 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 there was a time in last century where, where people weren't that interested in the harpsichord. Yeah, I think, so I was an undergraduate the second half of the 1980s, and from my way of thinking, she'd, she'd slightly disappeared from view and had been um, overtaken by a new breed of um, historically informed performers. And of course, don't forget that she was a harpsichordist, but she performed on a revival harpsichord, i.e. a harpsichord that she'd commissioned from Playel to her very exacting specifications. And they're, you know, they're monsters, you know, they're really these huge things with, you know, seven pedals and um, amazing number of stops. So it couldn't be further away from the harpsichords uh, that she first heard in the 1890s, which were from the, you know, the 17th and 18th century. She was peripheral to me. If you go and listen to the recordings, which I obviously did for, for this um, book, you find out that she was really ahead of her time and, and, and very modern in her playing and, and very musical in her playing, a fantastic technique. There are the stories like, like the harpsichordist Ralph Kirkpatrick, who's a pretty waspish um, young man when he went and studied with her. You know, he tells this story in his book of her um, upbraiding him and saying, how can you hope to understand the mystery that is Wonderland Oscar? The mythology was, you know, quite large in the 1920s and 1930s. And that gets taken over by misfortune and, and that sense of a lucky escape. So her life lived out in America um, in the 1940s and 50s is different somehow. The, the mythology is, I don't know, she settled into herself somehow and uh, it was a different uh, manifestation. But no, yeah, uh, getting to know her music um, and performances uh, was a complete delight. She, she recorded, for instance, in the, in the last decade of her life, the, um, the 48 periods and fugues which are, you know, astonishingly brilliant and vital and, and full of uh, amazing characterizations and, and, and pure virtuosity.
There was something just compelling about her as a musician, which I must confess I only found out uh, really well after deciding that her story was compelling. And then, you know, it's kind of nice to know that a person with a compelling story also is a compelling musician. One of the things she did do was she did introduce the world to the Goldberg Variations. Uh, I believe Kirkpatrick beat her to it, didn't he, in Germany, <laughs> presenting it there, yeah. which is, of course, a bit of a sore point. She recorded those works twice. She certainly did that. And going back to 1934, uh, where she was performing uh, on harpsichord, the Goldberg. So the, the, they'd been done on piano, obviously, but um, not terribly often. And she didn't think it was possible either to play them on the piano. Uh, and she thought you had to have a two-manual um, instrument, two-manual harpsichord to, to play them properly. Obviously, we've worked out that there are ways around all the, the, um, the incredible tricks and technical requirements of the Goldbergs. She loved those pieces and did. That, that first uh, recording of the Goldbergs and then the, the next recording in the um, 1940s are astonishing achievements. And suddenly people were hearing these pieces for the first time. And then, of course, you know, Glenn Gould changes that uh, in the 1950s when he records his first version for piano. But uh, Landowska was, you know, selling thousands and thousands of this because it was unknown repertory, and she performed it with such virtuosic, you know, certainty and, and style that uh, it's no surprise that you know, suddenly that you know, people were interested in the music. Let's go back to the story, though, of hers, which is the fact that she was living and established in France, had to leave, move, first of all, out of Paris for a period of time and then to the States. This whole tragic story of what happened to this collection. Can you tell me a little bit about the collection that she'd had by that stage and what actually happened to it then? Yeah, she probably had about 16 or 18 different keyboard instruments, you know, a couple of uh, rookers, harpsichords, a spinner. She had two, I think, so-called revival harpsichords, these playoff harpsichords, which were her bread and butter. Those are the ones that she toured with and, um, and recorded on. And uh, lots of other kind of beautiful little spinners. And then, of course, this piano, this Chopin piano that she had discovered in Majorca in 1911 when she was there doing concerts and acquired uh, two years later. And for her, all these instruments, when in, in 1927, she built a, a small concert hall in saint la forêt in the north of Paris, all these instruments were in the hall and there, and she kept them in working condition because to her, they, they weren't collection pieces. They were a way of her working out what composers thought about music and how they wrote and, and the effects that they were after. Yeah, all, all of this um, fueled her own uh, writing. It certainly fueled her recording and her performances and the way that she, her scholarship and teaching. So, you know, it was a working collection and, of course, valuable 
to that end, uh, it wasn't so much that, that they were amazingly valuable in terms of um, money, um, although some of them would be. You know, some keyboard instruments at that stage didn't have the same speculative value as, as um, really good string instruments. But um, they were certainly valuable in terms of, you know, one of the leading pioneers of the revival of music of the, you know, the 17th and 18th centuries. Yeah, there's something kind of wonderful about this collection and what happened for the period from 1927 when she founded this uh, festival and school, summer masterclass courses, etc., and 1941 when she flees um, on the, the arrival of, um, of the Nazis. It's tragic from, from that view, and of course the Nazis weren't after the, the instruments so that they could sell them or, or anything like that. They wanted these historical artefacts and they wanted certainly the Chopin piano for what it represented, um, not because they were in need of a piano, they just wanted the actual artefact. So there's something kind of, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark about it all. These people just determined to hunt it down and have it. And then, of course, uh, being Nazis, they, they you know, catalogued everything, they listed everything, they left the most astonishingly detailed paper trail and uh, which means that you know a historian like me can come along and, and just um, pick up where they left off and, and see what actually happened in that period. Of course, this led you to meet with the cellist Anita Lask of Auschwitz, who was best known in the world as the cellist of Auschwitz and the Women's Orchestra in, in Auschwitz, and your discussion with her, and she tells you about a particular cello that she's never been able to track down. She is a you know a formidable person, musician, and um, just with a very tragic but happy ending story to tell, which you know she survived Auschwitz. You know we don't say that so often, and she wrote at one stage, uh, yeah, I used to play on a beautiful Ventapani cello. God knows who plays on it now, and um, and in some senses that's where my whole story began because these same friends that I was t- telling you about at the beginning, the Krausers, she would say to me that when she'd go and see a, uh, a string quartet, you know, playing at Wigmore Hall or something, she'd look in the program and see, you know, the instruments on loan from Deutsche Bank or something and she'd go, oh, yeah, well, I wonder how they came by them, you know. And so there, there really is this thing. If you're a, a Jewish person or from a Jewish family, you know, who lost people you know, and, and musicians, you just go, well, it's par for the course that you know instruments were looted, and uh, and who has them now? Who knows? Now the thing is that you know pianos were, as I say, less valuable, but also far less portable. So, yeah, the reason my friend Ruth can in 1951 pick up a 1913 Bösendorfer Grand for for no money at all is because, yeah, Germans, of course, you know, packed up these instruments and took them to uh, offices, um, houses and residences and palaces and recreation halls uh, for personal use, for, uh, for morale, for Hochschule that they were going to um, make, etc. But a lot of things, a lot of big pianos were just left behind. Um, so I think there is this strong sense of uh, what happened to those instruments. You know, Anita also said to me, you know, uh, when I asked her, "Do you go back to? Did you go back to Germany a lot after the war?" and uh, and she said, "You know, she went a few times, but she said also, look, I'd go there, but I'd look at men above a certain age and just go, well, what what did you get up to um, between 1933 and 1945? So she said, you know, she just found it too disgusting. And um, and that's that's very prevalent with a, a lot of survivors. Yeah, I think there is this thing about the sense of loss, and it's translated down generations as well. And um, so that's why you'll often hear of, you know, if an instrument sort of emerges and its provenance is discovered, um, you know, it then goes to tribunal uh, that are set up directly for this. 
and and the airs are compensated or you know the instruments returned or or yeah it's a very long process but it's nowhere near as well understood as that for art it just isn't and the person who's doing the most work on this today is an American restitution lawyer and music lover and music instrument maker, funnily enough, called Carla Chaperot, and of course whom you know and um, you've worked with. And so she, you know, it's, it's almost hard to believe that she's currently writing a book about this and about the wholesale looting of music collections and instruments. And it's the first time that a book like this will appear but you know we could name five books about art um, straight mm-hmm. away so her line is that it's just nowhere near as progressed in music collections as it is in the visual arts and that the understanding restitution for musical instruments is seen as somehow less sexy or, or less kind of it's, it's harder to, to grab onto unless it involves um, you know, really amazing um, string instruments. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the looting was actually really rather mundane. And the same with, you know, the looting of um, uh, book collections, which are just personal libraries, not even amazingly valuable libraries, personal libraries. And, you know, a lot of it was just mundane and greed and punitive um, psychology. How do, we, how do we punish these people? And, of course, you know, the Nazis had even an extra twist on that in Warsaw where they, they didn't even bother to um, loot the books in Polish libraries. They just burned them because, uh, you know, obviously the, the Poles are kind of sub, subhuman people. So it's, you know, it's a terrible story. And, uh, you know, people like Carla, who, who actually works taking these cases through to trial and writing academic papers and then now writing, you know, this big history of it, people like that are great, but they're few and far between. And it's just, it just doesn't have the same traction as the visual arts. Whether it will come to have that traction, I don't know. Mm. Instruments tend to be such personal things and they're very easy to hide. Mm. Uh, I think there's, there's something in that and what you're saying also about the pianos. But let's get back to Landowska in New York and her life in New York. Very late in her life, like when she was around 79 or something, quite a bit of her property was rediscovered in various places. By this stage, from what I can understand, she was a bit too old and a bit too tired to be bothered with this. Can you tell me some of the interesting discoveries there? Yeah, I mean, the majority of the discoveries were actually in 1945. And so it's a happy story in some senses mm. uh, because of the value of the instruments as the Russians came from the East, uh, as the, the Americans and um, the English came from the, uh, the West, uh, Germany knew it was, you know, it was almost over. But the really valuable um, parts of their um, looting were kind of shipped around like chess pieces, moved around like chess pieces in an attempt to keep safe. And um, so Landowska's collection of instruments has ended up in a, a monastery in Reitenhaslach and survived. And, and some of them were also moved to salt mines. Uh, lots of salt mines and copper mines were used as places to store art in particular, and, um, but also some instruments. So the majority of the restitution took place in 1945 and 1946. And certainly by 1946, those instruments that survived, and it's probably about half of the collection, uh, were back in her house in the north of Paris. But she, of course, never returned to that house. Um, she had a life by then in America and was probably a bit like Anita uh, Laska-Walfish, just saying, sorry, I don't, I don't need to be there. You know, mm. this, uh, that didn't work very well for me and um, my, my fellow Jews. So that took place then. And, and then she, she did actually spend you know, um, years uh, trying to find other bits and pieces. And, um, and she had a very, very firm ally in uh, Denise Restu, who was her assistant. 
and uh, and she kept at it um, and 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 returned to the the scent if if you like in uh, uh, after Landowska died in 1959. And in 1959, it's true, the beginning of 1959, her Bach-Gesellschaft had been found. And so that's 50 volumes of the, the, the pioneering 19th slash 20th century uh, collected edition of Bach's works, which were key to the Bach revival in the, um, the 19th century and, and hugely important scholarship. And so she had that complete edition and, um, and that was discovered. But yeah, by the time that was discovered, she was actually really slowing down and, um, and it did seem to pass her by. And then, of course, yeah, Denise Restu tries to, after after her death to track down the remainder of the the, the instruments, and uh, and that includes, of course, by that stage, the Bowser piano because it had gone missing. And so it's almost as though when Landowska was in America, that she just decided that uh, you know this was a new chapter and the old chapter was finished. It's ultimately um, uplifting in, in the sense that she she made such a success of this final chapter in her life and on a completely different platform. It's also very sad, the fate of these instruments, the fate of uh, the school that she ran there and, uh, and the impact that she had on, on a young generation of emerging musicians. decide to take on a marathon like this and to write this type of book what's the process for you like what are the things that you're looking for at the beginning of a an adventure like this into the lives of these people well this book was hard um in that i was saying this actually i've got a really wonderful um editor and i was saying this to him at one stage when we were working on rewrites and i just said oh this is hard and he said oh yes it's it's not at all you know like writing something like a you know like a biography which is simple you know mm. and I just thought well you know I'd done a 700 page biography of Benjamin Britten and it didn't seem so simple at the time but uh, <laughs> yeah so but this one was hard because it didn't have a pre-existing template and and this is what he's saying that you know with a biography if you're writing a conservative if you like um, but you know landmark biography it's it'll often just be cradle to grave and and you've just got to hope that you've got all that research at your fingertips or in your head. This book was hard because it didn't have a, a pre-existing structure. And even though I knew I wanted to trace the piano, which, if you like, gives it its chronological um, narrative impetus, I didn't know what else was going to be caught in the dragnets, um, if you know what I mean. Mm. And it was a matter of discarding a lot, funnily enough. Once I worked out the, the basic overall uh, structure, what happens, who comes into it, it was a matter then of discarding. 
and the editing process you know brought the book down by quite some um, thousands of words that was actually really good and you've just got to throw out your baby you know throw out the thing you love and you just you just have to you just go okay that's really fascinating but um, it's taken us uh, you know too far away and I remember saying to my editor uh, he said well, well he was exasperated about it. one little side alley that I'd gone down and um, and he said you know why why are we down there we were here a moment ago and you know it was really obvious we we're going there and and I said, um, I go down these side alleys because I think that the reader will be charmed as long as they're charmed. And, and I hope that I don't take the, the, we don't stay in the side alley for longer than they're charmed. And, and, and he said, OK, I agree, but I'm not charmed in this, in this particular instance. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the test. How do you bring so much into a book, uh, but at the same time try and tell what started as a detective story? Where, where was this piano? Where, um, where did it go? And where is it now? What about the 24 Preludes? How have they changed for you over the time that you've been working on this and writing them? Well, I didn't, I didn't play them before. And um, in my total absence of Chopin childhood or adolescence, I like to, when I'm writing about music, uh, play it or conduct it or, or you know, uh, at least get to the score and get to what I think is going on in the music and then try and turn that into prose. So playing them um, has been, yeah, just a, an amazing privilege. And the thing that I find amazing about them is that they are so fleeting. You know, some of them are over in, you know, 40 seconds and you go what is this man doing uh, writing pieces that last 40 seconds when Liszt is writing, you know, B minor sonatas that go on for days? Um, it's interesting trying to pin down, which people have done since um, 1841 when they were first publicly performed, um, and even the year before when Schumann wrote a review of the first published edition of, of the Preludes, and, and he couldn't quite pin them down. And, and that would have been him playing them at the piano and trying to work out what, what Chopin meant by them. So people have been trying to pin them down for, um, you know, 200, almost 200 years. Uh, that's, I suppose, what I've tried to do. Um, yeah, so I didn't really know them so well, but part of the narrative conceits of this book was that, uh, look, if I'm tracing a piano, I better know the music that was written on it and try and work out how that music was shaped by this piano. And so that's taken a lot of work and, and what pleasurable work that is. There's been a time in your life when all of a sudden this adjective Australian became not so nice when people were saying, ah, that Australian musicologist, Paul Kilday. You wrote a fantastic biography of Benjamin Britten, but it caused a lot of upset for people in this part of the world where we are at now in Britain. And somehow I'm not quite sure why that all happened. Can you explain perhaps a little bit? I don't really know. I mean, I have my views. Look, at the very end of this book, which is a very scholarly but uh, readable book, it was intended to distill all my scholarship, uh, which was from years, you know, doing a doctorate on Britain, you know, writing about him, conducting, thinking about him, um, to distill all that knowledge and into a, a book, uh, a biography for the centenary year of Britain's birth that was for a general readership. And so that was the goal. Now, in the course of my research... 
I rediscovered some notes that I had uh, uh, taken when I interviewed one of Britain's old um, school friends who was a medical doctor, and he mentioned that um, Britain had had syphilis and that had been one of the causes of his unsuccessful heart operation in 1973 because the surgeons didn't know at the time. He also mentioned his source for this information. And, uh, and so when I was writing the book, I tracked down this cardiologist um, who was the source. And uh, the surgeon, Britain's surgeon, was still alive, but um, he was suffering from dementia. So uh, I tracked him down. He said, look, it's all true, but I'm not going on the record. I'm not going to confirm it. Um, I'm sorry. But over time, I kept going back at him. And over time, um, he agreed to talk about it. And then I got to confirm what he said with another doctor who had been also told directly from, by the surgeon. So my source was a good friend of the surgeon. This other doctor was um, an associate of the surgeon. Um, he confirmed it. And, um, and then another source who was so intimate with the surgeon. So I thought, look, these are three sources. You know, they're all saying exactly the same thing. Um, th- as far as I'm concerned, this is, you know, and then I saw the me- medical records and it makes it really clear that in the operation, the surgeon suddenly went, something's wrong here. I, I, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The etiology of the, the lesion in the heart is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So he does tests. And then what happens is obviously he gets the results of the tests, never announces it. But over time, I'm told my source and told the, the, his associate who then confirmed it. So I feel as though I had a responsibility um, to include this. I feel as though I, I had been responsible in how I dealt with the information. And all I required in return uh, was for critics of my view to have the same responsibility um, towards the knowledge uh, to track down my sources or to track down, you know, people who say, no, I was in the room and I absolutely know it's not true. And they didn't. And they just went, how on earth can uh, um, this... uh..." And this is where the Australian thing came in, I think. I think there was something... uh, It conforms to that idea of the the slightly vulgar um, colonial. And so I was being, uh, rather than a, a, a scholarly biographer, I was being a slightly vulgar Australian. And, um, and I think that that was, that was at the back of, of people's minds. That, and, and it's slightly, you know, I think that there, I think if you're writing a book, you do have a responsibility to, uh, to the truth. And, um, and I took that very seriously. I didn't think that a single one of my critics um, took that same responsibility with any, anything like the seriousness with which I think I deserved. Uh, indeed, you did. And the sad thing about this and the really ridiculous thing about this is that it's some of the most beautiful writing about music. Tell us about that difficult task, writing about music, because it's something that a lot of people try and a lot of people are very unsuccessful with. Well, OK, I think it is really difficult, but I think that um, that's the game. Um, and if you can't do it, um, you know, probably best don't. And it's interesting, like in the 19th century... Uh, particularly around Chopin, uh, people tried to put into words what he was doing in his music and came up with elaborate and quite flowery, um, uh, romanticised descriptions of the music. So I've never found that particularly interesting, but I have always tried to work out a way of coming up with a single um, image or analogy or, or a metaphor that makes it really clear to a non-specialist the phenomenon of hearing that piece of music in that moment and 
that a specialist can't criticize me over. Um, mm. So that seems to me the, 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 the double-edged sword has to be that you can make it so clear to a non-specialist, but that a specialist isn't allowed to laugh at you. <laughs> has to say, oh, I get what you're saying. And um, So the example in the Chopin book is um, I talk about Richter and I talk about Rubato. So I was trying to work out, like we know Rubato, if you're a musician, we know what that is, um, but a non-musician doesn't know it. A non-musician will know the word. So how do you explain to a non-musician what that means? And so I was thinking about that. I thought, oh, what it's like is some... Um, is when a golf ball is putted and it just kind of almost, almost doesn't fall into the hole and then it just falls into the hole. And it's that moment of anticipation before it happens where, you, where your heart kind of starts to beat faster and then, and then it passes. And, um, and that to me is what you know, beautiful rubato is like. And then suddenly I thought, because I'm no sportsman, <laughs> suddenly I thought, whoa, what if I'm wrong? What if, what if, what if that never happens? Like, what if golf balls actually always just fall into the hole? What if I've misremembered um, golf balls um, from my youth when my father made me go and play golf with him? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, just, I, I, I got um, really kind of panicked then because the book was already, um, you know, at the... At the, at the um, so this is only, you know, a couple of months ago. The, the book was in, in production. What if, what if that's really wrong? I Googled and I just said, golf ball teetering on the edge and there's this um, a tiger woods at an open um about 10 years ago or 15 years ago where he does this enormously long um shot and the ball comes and it just sits there and it sits right on the edge it sits right on the edge and, and the whole crowd is going <gasps> and then it just slow motion falls in and i went oh okay i'm fine i haven't misremembered it my <laughs> my youthful memories are intact uh, so yeah, so uh, that to me is a joy. How do you describe something that we take for granted as musicians to a non-musician in a way that makes them go, ah, okay, um, in a way that makes them go when they hear it in a concert hall, okay, that was that little bit of golf ball um, falling in the hole. I, I find it a creative challenge and it, that's a nice uh, predicament to have. You're spending more time back in Australia. What's your sort of observations of the music scene back there these days and what's happening and how it's developing? Not sure on the music scene. Um, it's all very fresh for me. I mean, I've been coming back, of course, and conducting a lot with Opera Australia and the orchestras. I, I don't feel as though I, I have a handle on what's going on there. Um, but as a country, I think it's an amazing place. I think it has this... Uh, I mean, we can all grumble and will about you know terrible governments and terrible individuals within terrible governments. But it's a really stable democracy. It's, it's a stable democracy that's not tearing itself apart, as we see here in, in England, as we see in various European countries. It has a, a phenomenally high standard of living. Our inequality, of course, is growing, and you know, we have to fight that as much as we can. But it seems to me a really 
beautiful, self-assured country. And it wasn't self-assured when I left. Like we're so shaped by you know English uh, institutions and models and philosophies, and 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 sometimes we've got the worst of them and the worst of American models. But it seems to me now that there's there's kind of a real Australian psyche and a, a real Australian way of thinking about life and living that's really attractive to me at the moment. And I don't know whether that's just part of the aging process. You know, it transpired that you know I managed to get an apartment in Melbourne uh, last year. And I returned to uh, Australia 25 years to the week uh, since I left Australia to go and study um, at Oxford. That was kind of, you know, I I didn't mean to be away that long. And you just suddenly go, wow, um, where did that happen? So it's going to be great for me to be part of that scene. um, And but yeah, it's really early days. We'll just wait and see. What about this mature Australia's political development and its place in the world? Both of us living here, we we read a lot of negative headlines about what's happening in Australia as far as refugees, as far as certain developments in in different ways. Do you think it's grown up enough to be making the decisions that it's making these days as far as refugee policy, environmental policies, all these sorts of things? Well, obviously not, because the current federal government is hostage to the worst recessive reactionary forces within the party and uh, look that to me is a huge shame uh, because there's a prime minister who's obviously a very clever man um, but you know who has a sort of factional gun to his head Um, you can only hope there's a resolution you know I'd be more than happy for uh, for that government to remain in power but not when it's so crippled by uh, conservative forces I'm not a fan of conservatism as a concept I feel that that liberal Governments always have to come in and undo the damage that um, is done by conservatives, which is, of course, the the absolute opposite of what um, conservatives say. They say that you know, well, we have to come in and you know, rein in the spending of of these uh, uh, profligate, liberal leaning governments. I don't know how to square that. It doesn't work for me. I would rather be a grown up outward-looking social democracy with um, a sense of social responsibility, uh, which applies to education, which applies to the arts, which applies to childcare. That's what I'd prefer. So I don't know about grown up. You know, Keating proved in the um, the late 80s and, and 90s that, you know, we were plenty grown up. You could probably argue that then we weren't grown up because um, we replaced him by, you know, the most reactionary and ludicrous man and government um, who for nine years squandered every possible opportunity of, of capitalising on the financial and um, intellectual capabilities of the country. So, I, I don't know. Yeah, we're just so well positioned. So all, all we want in that situation then is is the the leaders that we actually really deserve, not, not the ones who just um, managed to get there. They say judge a country by how well it's done, by the type of investment it has made and does make in the arts. Do you think Australia is paying enough attention to that? In a sustained sense, you can't kind of magic policy and money to support the arts. I mean, Keating did try to do that with... So Whit- Whitlam. Uh, so did Whitlam, very much. But the problem is that if Whitlam had stayed longer and if some of those trends had been bedded down, uh, perhaps it'd be fine. Look, things are really tough over here, but there's still a license fee that funds you know, numerous symphony orchestras. There's a culture of philanthropy that uh, will keep Covent Garden open. So these are things that didn't exist in the 1920s in England, but did exist by 1950. 
And so they've had, you know, 70 years of doing this. Uh, we had Whitlam do it for three years, and then, you know, some of it was wound back, and then, you know, fits and spurts in the 80s. We just haven't had that sustained run at being really kind towards the arts and generous towards them. Look, you know, perhaps it's, it's partly not what we do as a country. Perhaps we do just other things amazingly well to do with um, our distance, uh, to do with our climate, to do with all sorts of things like that. And when I say that, I mean uh, aspects of the performing arts that are really expensive. Um, fortunately, we produce beautiful writers, we produce um, gorgeous playwrights, um, beautiful painters, all the rest of it. But the expensive arts... That's the tricky one. And the expensive niche arts, which, you know, art music, classical music is becoming more and more, and opera, we're all scratching our heads to work out how to solve that. My supervisor, my professor always used to say it still takes four people to play a string quartet. We, you know, we haven't yet worked out a way of um, changing that scale. And if you combine that with fewer educational outlets for um, music um, with younger, you know, amongst younger students and young school kids, they're not going to suddenly, you know, discover chamber music when they're 30. You know, you have to bed some of this down. So if you're not bedding down education, music education, and if you're not bedding down the infrastructure required to perform um, to those people who benefit from music education, yeah, it's, it's a pretty desperate situation. Is indeed. Paul Kilday, I've exhausted you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this wonderful new book and uh, for talking to me today. Terrific. Pleasure, very much. Pleasure. Conductor and author Paul Kilday, and incidentally, Paul's latest book, Chopin's Piano, A Journey Through Romanticism, is published by Penguin Press. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, please visit our website. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com or write us an email to info at tall-poppies.com. Tall Poppies, the podcast, was established with the support of the Australian Embassy in Berlin. It was nice to have you with us today. I'm Brendan O'Shea and I look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of Tall Poppies very soon. Goodbye.